Hello and welcome to The Alcohol File, a podcast series that explores how we can better understand the impact of alcohol in our lives. This podcast is provided by Alcohol Action, Ireland's leading independent advocate for reducing alcohol harm. I'm your host, Una McKinney, and today, along with our guests, we will be discussing the proposed modernisation of liquor licensing, which the Irish government intend to enact before the end of this year, which would be an unprecedented rapid passage through Parliament for such a significant piece of legislative framework. The proposed legislation, a key recommendation from the recently report of the Nighttime Economy Task Force, is intended to reform Ireland's licensing laws, which are largely underpinned by a 19th century statute model. But over recent decades, these have been rather exposed as somewhat unfit for purpose, as commercial parties exploit weaknesses to expand and extend alcohol sales. Reforming these archaic statutes now are vital. It's an opportunity to redefine what are the public objectives of alcohol licensing policy and to ensure that public health objectives, as well as public safety and security concerns, are given an equal priority to those facilitating greater commercial opportunities to expand the nighttime economy. There's an expectation, as outlined in the report of the Nighttime Task Force, that the process of application and renewal for licenses will become simply a lot easier and and require less scrutiny. They also anticipate that new categories of licensing hours will be created to reflect the needs of new new areas of activity in the culture and hospitality sector, and that trading hours, crucially, will be extended, enabling bars to potentially stay open to 2.30am and nightclubs extending hours out to 5am, which is quite a significant change on what is, what is currently operational. The public health policy at the moment is, is elaborated within the Public Health Alcohol Act of 2018. And in recognition of the scale of harm throughout Ireland, It has a stated objective of reducing alcohol use across the drinking population. It recognises the drivers of alcohol demand and has enacted specific measures to curb key aspects such as price, promotion, but crucially access and availability. So joining me this morning to discuss some of these matters, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Neve Fitzgerald. Neve is a Professor of Alcohol Policy at the Institute of Social Marketing and Health at the University of Stirling. And Dr. Helen McAvoy is Director of Policy at the Institute for Public Health, which is an All-Ireland body. So, Helen, if we can, can we just have a beginning opening discussion perhaps around some of the significant policy changes that are now being proposed. And I know that you and the Institute of Public Health have obviously kept a watching brief on some of these developments, specifically in the context of what the response might be in relation to preventing and managing alcohol-related harm. But there has been a significant level of development in, in policy, as I say, especially in Northern Ireland more recently, and now obviously moving into Ireland. So maybe you could just as an opening introduction to some of these topics, give us a sense of what that policy change and what, what the current landscape is actually shaping like. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Eunan. And um, just to give you a background to the organisation that I, that I work for, 
I work with a policy team and we attempt to sort of bring evidence to decision making on a number of public health issues, but all specifically on the regulation of alcohol and the government responses to alcohol-related harm. And this endeavour requires us to work across multiple government departments and, and both jurisdictions. From a, from a health perspective, the Public Health Alcohol Act is a really important and uh, very significant piece of legislation that, that recognises that the extent of the harms caused by alcohol and the need for regulatory approaches. But alcohol licensing laws are also really important from a public health perspective as they directly influence alcohol availability, which, which in turn affects the level of consumption and patterns of consumption and therefore patterns of harm. But alcohol licensing laws are also important in a longer term perspective because they have an influence on cultural norms around alcohol consumption and I, I suppose you might think of that personally in terms of what does it mean to have alcohol served in the cinema, the way it is uh, retailed within your local sports club or even in your hairdresser. So these are the sorts of ways in which we have with licensing can change cultural norms around alcohol consumption and create different sorts of drinking occasions and the, the, the people in, in the community that, um, that would be affected by that. I suppose, you know, when I think about policy on these matters, it's really important to keep in mind that the development of, of public law and public policy is, is for everyone. And we, we know that 20% of people don't drink alcohol, but that, the, but that those that do, there does tend to be a pattern of overconsumption in Ireland in a way that is harmful to health and society. So the development of any licensing laws do need to think about the 20% of people who don't drink and how they are going to be affected by changes in the retail of alcohol in their local community. I suppose on the, the more immediate piece, I think, is the short-term concerns in relation to what this may mean in terms of public safety and public order and in terms of the changes that may need to happen in relation to the police force and the scheduling of their and volume of their presence in relation to uh, people coming out of drinking establishments where they have been there uh, until the small hours of the morning. And then the longer term piece around sort of renormalisation of drinking occasions. So uh, we were lucky enough to hear from um, Dr. Deirdre Mongan at our uh, webinar on alcohol harm in nightlight settings. And she was talking about this issue and explained that, you know, 23% of people felt harassed on the streets as a result of a stranger's drinking and 19% felt unsafe in a public place as a result of strangers drinking. So these are, these are factors to take into account in relation to the broader population health impact of, you know, increasing trading errors in uh, licensed premises. So I suppose the big questions are if licensing reforms increase errors of sale, how will that change consumption and harms? And I know that, that Neve will bring the very best sort of data and evidence to that. And if there's, uh, and how can we do this when we also have continued availability of cheap alcohol in, in other settings? Yeah, in the off trade. Yeah, so we're hoping that minimum unit pricing will go some way to closing closing off that particular issue. But we do, I think we're realistic that the, the two things will be will be continuing on in tandem, certainly in Northern Ireland, where minimum unit pricing has not yet, not yet been introduced. And just just in the context of Northern Ireland, Helen, I mean, the, the recent legislation there, I mean, what was the, the 
the backdrop to that particular initiative and, and what largely grew out of that? Well, this has been a, like a lot of pieces of legislation in Northern Ireland, they have risen and, and fallen along with the availability of a sitting assembly to pass these laws. So we've actually been working, providing evidence on this law for nearly a decade with in 2012 and 2016 and then in, in 2021. Mm-hmm. The Legislation and Registration of Clubs Amendment Bill now ACT got royal assent in, in 2021. It covers a wide range of issues like permitted opening hours, a new licensing framework for local producers and a framework for licensing in relation to sort of special events. So the development of this new law in Northern Ireland comes on the background of data um, from the Department of Justice in Northern Ireland that where they asked the general community about the nighttime economy and people drinking or being drunk in public was identified as the single most serious problem within the nighttime economy in Northern Ireland. So, and yet it's very difficult to see that feature reflected within the way in which the nighttime economy is being governed through licensing legislation. So I would be concerned that we might see a similar pattern happen in in the Republic of Ireland. So the recommendations that that we developed in relation to the sale of alcohol bill and alcohol licensing in Ireland were really to include public health and safety as a defined licensing objective and to ensure that the bill doesn't inadvertently increase the availability of alcohol but also to ensure that the bill doesn't contribute to normalising alcohol use by creating all new drinking occasions in public transport, sports clubs and cinemas, for example, and really seeking policy coherence or alignment between what the sale of alcohol bill is is going to do, but also the policy direction in reducing harm support and recovery strategy and also the Public Health Alcohol Act, really ensuring that the bill is based on data and evidence, as well as taking account of sort of broader community concerns and frontline services responding to alcohol harms in nightlife settings, and thinking about how the legislation could and should protect groups most vulnerable to alcohol-related harms in nightlife setting, including young men, women, bar workers, uh, polydrug users, and people living in socially disadvantaged areas that are already experiencing an excess burden of alcohol-related harm, but also to monitor and test the impacts of changes of alcohol licensing on public health and safety outcomes and look in a, in a rigorous way at people's experiences of the nighttime economy, not just the service, ex- service providers' views of the nighttime economy. Sure. Providing a place for people with expertise in, in, in public health and public safety, in crowd control, in, in, to input into the development of the review of the legislation. So they are essentially the asks that we, we came forward based on what we had seen in the evidence, based on the experience in other countries, and looking to see that there's a coherence, if not a full alignment, between the ways in which different government departments are seeking to regulate the sale and supply of alcohol. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, there's a lot, really a lot of ground to cover there, and, and maybe we can come back to talking. I'm really keen to talk about some of those issues around normalisation and 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 concerns that people have over, over over their own safety. And we know that that from the there's a seminal study to alcohol harms to others, uh, which was published by the HSE back I think in 2018. And I mean, the figures in that are about people who actually were 
had had significant concerns for their safety in public was 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 quite enorm quite significant and one of the main drivers of what was preventing people from enjoying a nighttime economy. So I think there's definitely a contradiction there that we'd like to maybe go back to. Neve, if I can, perhaps I could bring you into the discussion at this point. And I know that obviously there's great work being done by you and your colleagues at the Institute of in Sterling. So I'd be grateful if you could maybe just give us some context to some of the work that you've been doing, whereby you've really examined the link between alcohol licensing and alcohol harm. And maybe if you can, maybe share with us some information that you have about what has already been some of these changes in Scotland and more broadly across the the Great Britain and some of the experiences that you may have gathered from such developments internationally as well. Yes, thanks, Eun, and um, it's a pleasure to be here. So I work at the Institute for Social Marketing and Health uh, in, at the University of Stirling, which is in, in central Scotland, although we do work uh, across the UK and Ireland and, and actually in, in several countries around the world as well. Um, our focus is on analysing the impact of marketing and we include uh, the availability of, of unhealthy commodities within that and we also look at uh, the impact of public policy on health and well-being and, and interventions that can improve health and well-being. And uh, we've done several studies around licensing, particularly looking at the kind of processes. So I suppose the way in which the licensing system in the UK works and how well it allows for uh, alcohol-related harms and the concerns of people around alcohol-related harms to be addressed. And as part of that, of course, we have looked at the evidence internationally in terms of uh, the links between alcohol availability and licensing systems and those harms. And I suppose um, I, if I could start almost with the just something that's, I suppose, really obvious, but uh, maybe isn't said as often as it needs to be, that that obviously licensing is fundamentally about the availability of alcohol. And, and the reason that we have licensing systems is because for centuries it's been recognised that alcohol isn't just like bread or milk, but that we need to control who sells it and where it can be sold and when it can be sold. And, and the reason for that is sometimes forgotten, which is, is simply that the easier it is to access alcohol and, and the more places that sell it and the longer that they open, the more alcohol that is bought and drunk and then there are both short and long-term harms that, that go along with that. So I suppose what you see in almost all high-income countries and, and, and you know many, many countries around the world, there are systems in place similar to Ireland where alcohol can't be sold without a license. And there are rules about who grants that license, you know, how those decisions are made. And, and, and as part of that system, there's usually some means of control of, uh, of the number of places that sell alcohol and the days and times that those places can open. So why does all of that matter? Well, I suppose there are several ways in which those systems, those policies and decisions within the licensing system influence ultimately how many people and families and communities experience alcohol harms and how much harm they experience. And I think sometimes what's missed is that like everyone likes to think that when that we're all making really independent decisions about when we have a drink that, you know, oh, well, I'm not influenced by marketing or I wouldn't just buy more alcohol because it happens to be available nearby or because the bar or club is open for an hour longer. I'm making my own decisions about this. But actually, we know in general, and I think people can kind of relate to uh, kind of common sense that, that that isn't the case. But there is also evidence for that. And um one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Rachel O'Donnell, as part of our excellence study, recently explored the views of 69 stakeholders working in the licensing system across uh, Great Britain. 
and found kind of five different ways in which licensing policies and decisions can influence harms. And I want to kind of highlight a couple of those in particular because I think they're really interesting. Yeah, so particularly thinking of the context of the legislation in Ireland. So um, so we tend to think just generally about more availability leading to greater consumption and greater harms. But the, the two sort of important ways in which that works, I suppose, is that where alcohol is more accessible and where alcohol is more visible. And Helen's uh, alluded to some of this already, but I suppose the convenience factor is the most obvious one. And as one person in our study put it, you know, if there was an off license next door to me, I'd probably go there more often and therefore I'd buy more alcohol and I'd probably drink more alcohol. You know, it, it, we'd like to think it works that, you know, I, that it's the other way around that, you know, you would think, do I want to drink? And then you'd only go there if you did. But but actually, when it's easier, we, we are more likely to to buy rather than walk in half a mile or a mile to, to purchase. It's easier to buy more alcohol if pub that you're in or the nightclub that you're in is not closing you know if you have to go and find somewhere else to drink it's harder to buy more alcohol so it is more accessible in that way but that accessibility then is turbocharged because alcohol is a drug that impairs decision making and makes people more impulsive so you're not only then having somebody who you know is deciding whether or not to go to the off license next door when they're sober but you have people who are already drinking we all know when you've had a drink it's more tempting to have a second and harder to resist and that's really critical to understanding why later opening hours, uh, particularly the later at night you go and after midnight, almost inevitably lead to continued drinking by some people who are already under the influence. And those people drink more, get drunker, and then more problems arise. So that, that accessibility works both in terms of the number of premises, but also um, the times that the, the premises sell alcohol. And then the second main mechanism, and I'll pause there, you know, is, is around visibility. So um, this one is important too, I think, because again, although normalization, as, as Helen mentioned, is an important aspect of this, um, visibility actually also leads to more immediate drinking. So the way this works is a psychological mechanism and a, the technical term for it is cue reactivity, but I suppose it's easy to understand like a trigger. So when we see people drinking, or we see somewhere selling alcohol, that actually triggers a response in, in our brains that is not with any conscious thought. It's an automatic response in your brain that can trigger us to, to go and, and seek alcohol. It triggers a craving for alcohol or a desire for alcohol and, and therefore um, leads to more consumption. Now, everyone can be triggered in that way, but the triggers become stronger um, amongst people who drink more alcohol. So heavier drinkers who are drinking more regularly experience these triggers uh, in, a, in a greater way. So that ha that applies to, you know, uh, people who are just drinking regularly who wouldn't be considered to have an alcohol problem. But then when you come to people who are also in recovery from alcohol problems, it's very hard for them to sustain that recovery the more places there are where alcohol is available. And, in, and that applies also in relation to children. So the, the more visible alcohol is, you know, the harder it is for people to find alcohol-free spaces and when you ask children and you ask people in recovery, they don't want that exposure. They, they, we know that greater exposure is associated in children with earlier drinking and a greater likelihood of later alcohol problems. So they're being exposed to merchandise and branding as well as just to the premises themselves. So although there were other mechanisms mentioned in, in that study, I think those are the two that are kind of most important in the, in the Irish context where 
you know, there are there is the potential for more premises uh, to be given licenses and, and for greater opening hours. Yeah, and I think we've seen, certainly coming out of the COVID experience, not that we're out of the COVID experience, but we certainly have seen a transformation in the, the, the public space in many ways around alcohol and the promotion of alcohol, you know, with increased street furniture, street promotion, and a lot of that type of um, marketing communication that has taken place, which is undoubtedly, you know, does act as that kind of trigger that you're talking about as well. Uh, I think that's a very uh, interesting point about the, the visibility that we're seeing. If we can, I'd maybe could we go back to the point about the normalization? Because I'm really I- I- interested in this. And of course, it is worth reflecting that the proposals that are, are within the the sale of alcohol bill as it likely will become is that there will be new categories of alcohol licensing and this has been sold notionally on the idea that there's new need or new needs arising in the cultural and hospitality sectors and somehow that they're a 21st century phenomenon that there needs to be a recognition of the greater needs and of course what this will simply facilitate is you know the idea that alcohol will be as helen outlined you know much more easier available in other places other than what traditionally where we had alcohol so we're going to see alcohol likely in cinemas as i think helen outlined that we might potentially even see it in 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 hairdressers and barbers and such places as that helen can you maybe just pick up on some of the what you see as the as 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 the impact of that type of change that we're going to see? Yeah, I mean it's difficult, I think, to predict because there's been no sort of detail provided or nothing that I have seen in relation to the categories of license that are that are proposed. I suppose historically there would have been categories of license licenses like um, in relation to things like early houses or you know uh, seafarers. Or people who have been working on night shifts or so on. So I, I do, you know, I do accept that the categories of license do need to be do need to be modernized at the very least because those provisions that were there for a purpose for the way we lived and worked hundred years ago are not there and could be subject to exploitation <laughs> as if nothing else. But I, I do think that the there there is something to think about here, particularly in terms of airports and public transport hubs and things like that, where we are seeing a lot of issues in relation to heavy drinking or alcohol-related harms for people using public transport or using an airplane or using an airport and how the normalising the supply of alcohol in, in those settings and facilitating supply of alcohol in those settings may contribute to alcohol-related harm for the people who work in those places and the people who are using public transport uh, to get from one place to another. So I think there's there's a lots of different settings that we need to to think about very carefully. Mm. And I think in that context of trying to think about these things carefully, I mean, the point would be, I think, that we need to come back to what is stated already public policy, which is endeavouring to try and reduce alcohol use. And obviously in that Public Health Alcohol Act, which took a very long time to get onto the statute books, I mean, it, it, it's, 
endeavour is to try and bring about a denormalisation of alcohol. In fact, at the time when it was published, the Minister for Health at the time said that it, one of the objectives was that it would try to denormalise that relationship that we have with alcohol. And yet now we have a situation where potentially public policy is going to encourage that. Yeah, and I think there's there's two, two particular areas that uh, are particularly careful consideration. One of them, I think, is the idea of kind of having, you know, pop-up alcohol retail um, in, at outdoor events, um, mm. whether they're sporting events or whether they're, you know, um, cultural events and so on. I think that really does need careful consideration about who those events are for and what their core purpose is. And also in relation to the other area where just currently in, in Ireland, the there's new regulation going through the legislative process on gambling. We have a report from Public Health England that showed the very significant association of problem gambling with alcohol use disorder. So we'd have to think about the public health implications of of facilitating alcohol licences for land-based gambling places and also, you know, public events where, you know, horse racing events and so on and so on, because I think there's a there's quite a significant amplifier effect there in relation to people who are struggling with both addictions and the uh, interrelationship between risks you may take in terms of the alcohol that you consume and the way in which you place your bets. So I think that really does is a good example of thinking about at-risk people and thinking about, well, is is serving alcohol for additional hours in these venues or serving alcohol at all in these venues a helpful thing? And who is it helpful for? And who is it harming? And what's the duty of care here in relation to people who may be already in a lot of difficulty with either gambling addiction or alcohol addiction or quite likely a combination of both? Sure, yeah. And I think to Neve's point about the uh, the stimulus on the decision making, that it becomes turbocharged, if I'm picking you up correctly there, Neve, in relation to, I suppose, when alcohol becomes that, when there is that greater availability. And of course, availability, as you say, is a key channel of, of marketing uh, promotion. But the idea that, that 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 we now have a situation where alcohol has been promoted so heavily that that your decision making does become turbocharged and and that that does have impact on 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 consumption. Absolutely, yeah, and you know we can see that in not just in the theory, but we can see it in in other countries as well in terms of the changes that they've made to their licensing systems. So yeah, I mean the the example that's pointed to a lot, I think, as, as if it's a benign example, is when England and Wales introduced twenty four hour licensing in the two thousand and three licensing act. Now, I think that's quite commonly misunderstood that suddenly every premises was allowed to open for twenty four hours, which wasn't the case you know it's they still needed to ask for permission to open later and that had to still go through a lo, you know local licensing committee to agree it but the studies that we have in England and Wales are fairly limited and they're mixed in their findings so you know the most robust uh, studies there there's two that we have so one David Humphreys found that um whilst there wasn't an overall increase in violent crime in in Manchester uh, there was a 36% increase in when that in violence between 3am and 6am. So the, the violence shifted to a later time period. And, and that obviously has implications for public services and policing. And, and so it's not just the volume of harm that matters, but it's, you know, what's the what are the on costs of that harm for A&E, for ambulance services and so on? 
And then the other uh, sort of fairly robust study that we have uh, didn't look at uh, sort of short-term outcomes, but looked at consumption. And that found that the 2003 changes in, in 24-hour licensing were associated with an increase in net alcohol consumption. So on average, there was an increase in alcohol consumption because people spent more in on-licensed premises, so in bars and pubs. And then that, that was underpinned essentially by people drinking more alcohol on the day that was already their heaviest drinking day. So, you know, really an association with binge drinking. And I suppose that's what you would expect that makes intuitive sense in terms of a change in, in how late premises are opening, that that's increasing alcohol consumption on days when people are already drinking a lot. And so, I mean, that, that's thing in Wales position, it is a little bit more mixed, but still, I would say, you know, a cause for concern in terms of liberalisation. But the international examples are, are much clearer in terms of the link between late night opening and um, increased harm. So in Amsterdam, they allowed premises to open for an extra hour uh, late at night. I think it was between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. Right. And they found there was uh, 34% more alcohol-related ambulance call-outs in the early hours after that was introduced. And then when you look in, in you know, a study that looked at 18 different cities and towns, including kind of smaller rural towns across Norway, which I think is interesting from, from an Irish context, they, they found that some cities had increased their hours and some had reduced them, but they found exactly the same change. So with one hour extra opening, you got a 16% increase in assaults. And with one hour reduction in opening, you got a 16% reduction in assaults. And, you know, that's that's pretty powerful kind of evidence in terms of the, the likelihood that that is a real finding and not just a, you know, a a random finding. And then there are multiple studies in Australia, but one in particular, one of the earliest ones that has a long follow-up period in Newcastle, um, the city of Newcastle in Australia, they found that every additional hour of trading after midnight was associated with 21% more assaults. And that that change, that significant impact was sustained more than five years after the introduction of the extra hours. So, you know, th there's really strong evidence internationally on, on opening hours that, you know, wasn't there really uh, four or five years ago. And uh, and I think it's, it's really a kind of should give pause for thought, given the, I suppose, the anomaly that you pointed out in, in terms of, of the stated desire to reduce alcohol consumption, alcohol-related harms, but, you know, the potential liberalisation of, of late night hours alongside that. Sure. And just, I mean, it's not necessarily an area you, you may have a particular strong view on, but I'd be just interested to know what your view is, if you can. And that is, like, what do you think has, has been, I mean, you've given us examples there, Neve, of essentially liberalisation that has taken place pretty much over the last two decades. And obviously Helen shared with us some, you know, the, the, the process that took place in Northern Ireland more recently. What do we think is actually driving this momentum across, certainly, let's say, the Western world, uh, if I can be as grand as that, 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 that says that somehow or another now is the appropriate time for us to be expanding this, the availability of alcohol? I mean, I think there there are probably different reasons in each case. When you look back mm. at the 2003 Act in England, you know, the, there was a sense that, you know, they wanted England to move to a, a European kind of cafe style drinking culture. Of course, all you end up getting is some of that along with uh, the existing culture that you already have, which is a, a very much a late night binge drinking culture. So you just have lots of people drinking more alcohol in the cafe culture and, and, you know, the longer term harms that go along with that, as well as the, the additional late night drinking. 
Um, so I don't think that's, you know, we didn't get a European style cafe culture, I don't think, in terms of, of uh, the changes that, that happened in England. Sure. Helen, have you, have you any view on this particular matter of why this liberalisation has taken place? I suppose I would bring it back to the political framing of what the problems, what the problem to be solved is. Mm. and what the potential solutions to that problem, that identified problem are. So how is this, how is this problem being framed? In, in, in Northern Ireland, it was framed as this primarily around two issues that did need, that certainly, you know, uh, one of which did need reform, which was the alignment between liquor and entertainment licensing and a, and a bit of a disjoint there. Um, but it was really framed as, oh, Northern Ireland being out of touch and they still don't serve alcohol at Easter time. And, you know, we've got all these fuddy-duddy belief systems and legislation and we need to modernise and get with the new, get with the modern times. So, and we need, we need to support the hospitality sector. So that was primarily the framing of the problem. And everything came from that in terms of the framing of the solution. So... The, the problem was not we have the highest, the Northern Ireland has the highest level of alcohol-related deaths in the UK at the time. Sure, yeah. The problem was not that we have a problem with people feeling safe, you know, and people and the community saying that uh, public drunkenness and fear and harassment are the main issues in relation to people going out and enjoying the nighttime economy. We had a very different framing sort of from the beginning. And then there's... I suppose there's a, a piece when the framing overrides the evidence. So the the bill in, in Northern Ireland did include some provisions in that were with a stated intention of reducing alcohol-related harm for people under 18, um, which was curious because it's a bill being voted forward from communities and not through the health department. But the measures that they proposed included things like reducing children's banning access to alcohol through self-service or vending machines. But we have data to tell us where children are accessing alcohol and they're not yes. really accessing it through self-service and vending machines. So they're sort of red herrings in a sense yes. Yes. that we, you know, let's look at the evidence of where children are accessing their alcohol and let's build a response from that rather than uh, get into a moral panic around self-service or vending machines for alcohol that aren't really a big issue in a population sense. I'm very glad that the, the regulation has been brought in to, to cut off that line of supply for lots of different reasons, but will it have a meaningful impact on that outcome? I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure. And I think the political framing in, in Ireland, again, has been very much around supporting the hospitality industry to recover and they've had a really awful difficult time during uh, during the pandemic um, I, I I really get that but again in framing the issue around the nighttime economy and what goes on the nighttime economy there was no public health or health representative on the nighttime economy task force so the way in which that problem was being framed again was that was not part of the framing and therefore, I think it's going to be very difficult to see solutions in place that will understand the issue with a public health or a public safety safety lens. I mean, I think there's it's not just, you know, it's not just we want less people to be intoxicated and a danger to themselves and their own health and others. I think there's also a duty of care for places that, that receive a license to do their very best to look after people who are intoxicated and at risk. 
And I think there's things that could be done accepting that a degree of, you know, people will get drunk, you know, and people will get themselves into difficulty. And there's ways in which that if you're having additional hours of serving alcohol, that maybe that comes as a responsibility to, to look after those people. I know this is a bit like parking the ambulance at the end of a cliff, but I think we have to be realistic that the, that should be part of taken into account in relation to licensing. So those things might be additional measures in relation to things like CCTV or health and safety or provision of transport or uh, facilities for uh, women, girls or indeed men who are uh, experiencing degree of sexual harassment or feeling uncomfortable in public spaces where people are intoxicated and disinhibited. So I think there's a there's a lot of responsibility that comes with looking after what happens when we have even even in relation to crowd control is mm. is it's quite different when you have people who've been drinking for five hours versus crowd control with people who've been drinking for an hour or two. So there's a response there's there's things that need to be taken into account, I think, in terms of looking after the inevitable degree of intoxication that will happen in those environments. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And of course you know, we've been we, we and others like like yourselves and others would would argue that the the need for accurate data, of course, is so critical to all of this, and that 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 seems to be the the endeavour to collect that data to really uh, get a sense of what the what the totality of the picture is 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 somewhat lacking, I think, at the moment. And I suppose we have to rate and see what. What degree of imperative is given to public health within the proposed legislation, uh, and and what action might be might be might be taken on that? But it is quite clear that you know, apart from the the obvious implications on public health, there are deep considerations that have to be given to, uh, as Neve talked about the the the. The emergency services, like we know, for example, that of you know during the weekends, that over a third of presentations to our ED departments are 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 alcohol related, and over half of them come into the EDs by virtue of ambulances. So, like just the sheer demand on 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 some of those types of services, and another consideration I think too that needs probably. You know, we we may get some opinions from 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 representatives in due course, but the idea around policing and and you know the resources of policing that are required into the early hours of the morning now that's going to be given to that, and will we see a situation where some of that policing maybe becomes privatized in some ways, and that that it's it's an expectation of the license holder to you know have some degree of a quasi policing regime around their own premises and some of these i think are quite interesting questions that really haven't been teased through um, and in particular that level of who who's actually in charge of our streets but i suppose that we 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 will wait to see what um might come out of that particular discussion yeah i think the language around sort of modernizing and you know moving away from these you know fuddy-duddy concepts around things like, you know, Easter drinking or whatever it is, you know, has been framed as a very kind of youth-focused, and this is young people, you know, seeking to revitalise the the nighttime economy, um, offer all these, you know, um, new opportunities for... Um, cultural expression and enjoying art and music and all of that that's that's all that's all fantastic but it, it's curious that the first thing to come out was a piece on alcohol licensing which I, I don't really believe is 
necessarily what the young people were looking for first from the nighttime economy developments. So it's, sure. it's become about alcohol licensing very quickly, which is essentially, which is which is very interesting. And I think that again that that framing around you know public health being you know perhaps bringing you know the you know acting as fun police in this environment is 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 untrue. <laughs> But it's often the way that we are we are framed within the debates. But actually, this is about reducing alcohol-related harm for everybody. I, you know, I absolutely think we should have a thriving nighttime economy and uh, lots of fabulous music and gigs and opportunities to, you know, late night museums and all that. That's all fantastic, you know, and sporting and cultural events, brilliant. I just am really concerned about the way that this is suddenly very very quickly just become uh, a debate around alcohol licensing yeah i mean it's clearly i would suggest even go further that it's somewhat flawed that a cultural expression has to be alcohol centric which is largely what they're trying to endeavor to do and that's that's largely been driven by a need to create a market around culture and 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 to monetize it but that's probably for a different discussion i think if i was to make a finishing point i think it would be to go back to the the point about data um so you know we the evidence is really pretty clear that if you give loads of places more licenses and you open them all later that you are likely to see an increase in harms but it, if people don't believe that and they don't buy into that then they should have nothing to fear from uh, robustly evaluating the changes that are being made and I think I would make a plea that that whatever changes are made are done in a way that allows for examination of what their impact is and reversal if that impact proves to be unacceptably detrimental to to well-being and and to people's ability to go out and feel safe in the nighttime economy so you know at the moment in Ireland we don't even we don't have a good uh, database of, of where the licenses are we don't have a good sense of who's opening you know who's opening when what their capacities are what their sales are when they opened when they close so we can't even really check whether there is a relationship between availability and harms because we don't have a good handle on what the availability is in different communities and equally it's very hard to gather good data on you know how many ambulance calls are actually alcohol related in in Ireland and so I think building in that evaluation feels really critical Uh, you know we could argue about the merits of it I would say that the evidence is pretty clear but as I say if that's not clear to others then then a, an evaluation should allow us to answer that question. And, you know, the methods are, are available. There are parallels, you know, as I say, in several countries in terms of how you can look at this and, and look at it really robustly and, and comprehensively and considering business impacts uh, as well as everywhere else. One quick thing to add that I, that I should perhaps have said earlier is that um, in one of the studies in Australia, they actually looked at the impact of business on reducing opening hours and they found that the nighttime economy thrived more there were more gigs and there was uh, an increase in business activity in the nighttime economy when the uh, hours of sale for alcohol were reduced rather than increased and i think that really should give us pause for thought yeah that's a really good point thank you for that one one last piece would be i suppose in our response to the consultation by the department of justice on on the reform of alcohol licensing in ireland we did refer to this issue around sort of policy coherence what the public health alcohol mm. act is trying to achieve in, re, in in terms of reducing harmful consumption and harm and then what this alcohol licensing bill 
is is aiming to achieve. And we proposed that it would be useful to do a health impact assessment on the alcohol licensing law to look at what what who what it what it what would what might the health impact be, which parts of the community might be most effective, and what amendments or adaptations to the law could be made to to um, to protect vulnerable groups and uh, to reduce harms um, while also retaining the core aspirations of the bill to make the licensing system easier to handle by all parties um, and to ensure that the people can go out at night and have a really good time and enjoy themselves and be be safe getting home. So that that's possible. But you know it is the health impact assessment is a tool that can be applied to a law before it is finalized to to tweak it to see if to, to propose adaptations that could reduce harms and yet still deliver on the core aspiration of the of the law. We did a health impact assessment a number of years ago in relation to uh, taxation on sugar sweetened drinks. And uh, so it's it's it has been there's a precedent there in relation to in relation to those things. Sure. Yeah, and I, I think on that point as well, and to add to that point, I think you know there is a requirement largely that this legislation would would go through pre-legislative scrutiny by the the Oireachtas Committee uh, on Justice, uh, and there has been a, a bit of a drift in recent times, certainly during this particular administration, that pre-legislative scrutiny isn't nece- is, isn't necessarily taken up or undertaken, uh, and I think in this context, with this such a such a significant piece of legislation, as I said at the beginning, that's essentially trying to address statute that dates back into the stretches back into the 19th century. I think it'd be really important that the the uh, legislators had a real opportunity to examine it line for line. But that we'll, we'll wait to see how that might pan out. Yeah, I would second that union. And, you know, one of the things that we see in examining the licensing systems in other countries as well is that the devil really is in the detail. And there are multiple examples of um, of things that are built into licensing legislation with the intention of kind of providing some balance for public health and that ultimately don't work. So you, you have early morning restriction orders are a classic example in England that were introduced in the legislation to give local areas some control over those kind of late night hours. And, um, and uh, not a single one has been implemented in, in the 20 years or so since the legislation came in uh, because they were challenged in court and, and didn't stand up. So that, that is so important to do that pre-legislative scrutiny well and, and to really understand whether what you're saying will happen is actually something that can happen. You've been listening to The Alcohol File and our discussion on what might be the implications to society from alcohol licensing reform, a policy agenda which contradicts an imperative of current public health policy and that will undoubtedly have consequences to the goal of reducing alcohol-related harm. I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Helen McAvoy and Professor Neil Fitzgerald for their time today and for sharing their deep knowledge in these matters. If you'd like to learn more about the proposed changes to alcohol licensing and why we view expanding availability as problematic, you can download our submission to the Department of Justice Public Consultation on Reform of Alcohol Licensing Law on the Alcohol Action website at alcoholireland.ie. And you can keep in touch with AAI and our advocacy work by following us at Alcohol Ireland across all social media platforms. But until the next time, thank you for listening 
and stay safe.